This is an ABC podcast. G'day, it's Clint Jasper joining you for a trip around a big country. This week, we're checking in on the grain harvest that's kicked off along the Queensland-New South Wales border. We'll meet some of the crew of seasonal workers who've stepped away from their regular lives to help get the crop off. We're also headed to the coast, where scientists are studying migrating whales and hoping to better understand just what the giants of the sea can hear. And we'll also visit an unlikely farm. It's wedged between apartment blocks in a regional city and it's growing fruit and herbs that will end up in drinks served at a neighbouring distillery and pub. When Ryan suggested the idea to put a 10-row passion fruit farm in the middle of the Wollongong CBD, at first I thought it was uh, a joke. A couple of days later, I realised he was completely serious. A few days later, I started to really dawn on me that it was a a great ingenious idea. Passion fruit is actually quite high yielding, so we're hoping we can grow enough to suit our needs just on these 10 rows. That quirky idea that's bearing fruit for a regional distiller and publican is coming up. First today, we're heading underground. Reporter Meg Powell is visiting a formerly mothballed mine in Tasmania that's been given a second life thanks to the growing global demand for electric vehicles. I'm 200 metres underground, in the belly of a newly reopened mine on Tasmania's west coast. It's dark and noisy. And in front of me, there's two men who have been drilling for hours through solid rock, digging tunnels to get closer to the treasure they're hunting for, nickel. They've been working here for about a month now, ever since the mine reopened after 13 years in care and maintenance mode. Joseph, that's Meg. How are you? Oh, you're all good, mate. Oh, That's your I'll shake, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He doesn't do anything, mate. So, I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. so we're heading um, down the side of the mine, which they call the Avebury side of the mine. There's two sides of the mine at the moment. It's the Avebury and the Viking, both potatoes. This is Pippi, not his real name. He manages the workers who go underground. I try and spend as much time as I can down here. This is this is where I like being. This is um, yeah, I like being down with the with the work work groups. So um, I really only go to the surface um, by default if I need to go for meetings or do any um, do anything in the office basically. But I, I prefer to spend most of my time down on the ground, underground. I'd say that's pretty unusual. Um, I hear that a fair bit from for a mine manager. I spend too much time underground. Some people could say, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, uh, again, I can remember when I when I started out around some belt in mine. I started as an apprentice and um, I would have only been 17, 18 then and I remember going to the portal and watching the miners come out in the shift and thinking that's where I want to be. My family were all miners, my father, my elder brothers were all miners, my grandfather was a miner, so it was certainly, <laughs> certainly in the blood, if you like. So, um, yeah, yeah, I said I... Um, Started. Yeah, I'm not swinging a sheet of mesh for visitors here. Not, not in this crap. It's only audio, so don't just Yeah. I'll just close that door, mate. Yeah, thanks. There you go. How about that? We're outside the shafts now, standing at the portal. It's surrounded by dense bush, birds, and in the distance, the sound of the ocean. I didn't expect it to be so peaceful out here. 
Yeah, it is. Like I said, it's, um, it's a beautiful spot. And I said the footprint of the mine is quite small. It gets a little bit noisy with machines coming in out of the mine from time to time, but apart from that, yeah, it's, it's pretty pristine. Now, Pippi, you were, you're, you're from Zan. Were you born yeah. in Queenstown? Yeah, born in Queenstown. I lived in Zan um, all my life. Give or take uh, a little bit of time away working over the mainland, but uh, mostly in Tasmania and majority of it around uh, Ransom Bell Tin Mine, which I came over uh, to Avery about a year and a half ago from. So for this start-up, the opportunity arose to um, do a restart here, which is pretty important for the community, the community I grew up in, so I thought it would be a good challenge to take on. My name's Dale Colson and I'm a local, I live in Zan, and I'm here as a process operator for the Avery Nickel Mine. How long have you lived in Zan for? All my life. I was born here. Yeah, love the place. Local through and through. That's it, yep. So you started with Avebury Mine back before it was Avebury Mine? Yeah, I started here in 2007, 8 or something, when it was, it was out here on commissioning, and we helped actually set the place up, ready to operate. I used to be at the Renison Mine on and off over the years. We've every, it used to shut down every now and then. So and then in between that, a bit of anything, but this is great, yeah. You set up the Avebury Mine back in the 2000s and then it went into care and maintenance mode and you stayed on with a few other people. Could you tell me a bit about that time? Yeah, with the care and maintenance situation, we, a few of us have kept on to finish cleaning up around the place and uh, maintain underground pumps and stuff like that, water, environmental issues, and it's looking really good. It's great to see it happening again. We've been waiting for a while. You must have been getting a bit cynical watching people come and then not do anything. There was a few tyre kickers, yes, uh, so to speak. There was numerous times saying we will be starting up and it never ever happened. So uh, as it turned out, we just was part of the furniture <laughs> and we're still here. Shuttles and... <laughs> yeah, yeah. For Dale, the mine's reopening is something like a symbol of hope for the declining town he has lived in and loved his whole life. It was good because we knew we were going to be a bit more secure um, and the town itself, it was a buzz, as you can imagine. People were asking questions left, right and centre sometimes, you know. It was, uh, sometimes you try to avoid a few, but in the end when we finally got a bit more confirmation we could tell them straight out, it's looking really good. The start-up will be happening. How did people react when you could finally say that? Uh, it, was, it was great, it was great. The whole town was a buzz because it was pretty quiet for quite a while, the little town, and uh, this has definitely boosted things up. I don't know if you know much about the housing and that in Zoom, but it's pretty hard to get a property in here at the moment because people have gobbled them up. It's, it's all happening, yeah. It must feel quite different, not only here in the mine but in Zan. Yeah, there's a lot of new faces as people moved into the town. Don't know them all, never, never will probably, but it's definitely improved and uh, she's really building up. That way we tend to keep your um, businesses and that alive. Your, your other things like your chemists, your medical centres and all them, they tend to stay on board. Whereas, you know, when towns fold, so does all this. And then people have got a hassle of travelling and finding alternative um, ways of looking after things. So, no, this is great. It's really building up. The central business district in the regional city of Wollongong is not where you'd expect to find a farm. But distiller Jared Smith and publican Ryan Atchison have successfully turned an old car wash and gravel car park into a productive plot growing native Australian plants. 
There's a few reasons why the farm's super exciting. One is to showcase Australian native edibles, which is something I'm really passionate about. So growing things like native thyme, native juniper, strawberry gum, allows us to be really creative with our garnish offerings, but also incorporate them into our alcoholic products. So we've got traditional and also native juniper, so people can come on a bit of an educational tour of the ingredients that go into different alcohols. We've got native thyme, river mint, strawberry gum, lily pillies, native ginger, and, and more, yeah. What were you thinking about when you were choosing those plants? Is it uh, how useful they could be in, in your operation here? Yeah, something a little bit different so that we're, when we're um, doing a cocktail, for instance, we could put in a sprig of native thyme, light it on fire and have a clear ice cube and really have an elevated drink experience. G'day, I'm Justin Hunsdale. I'm chatting with Jared Smith about the urban farm he's helped set up on a main road in this city in the New South Wales Illawarra region. The green patch, with rows of passion fruit vines and edible native plants, is surrounded by high-rise apartment blocks. The concept was Ryan's brainchild, and one Jared was initially unsure about. When Ryan suggested the idea to put a 10-row passion fruit farm in the middle of the Wollongong CBD, at first I thought it was uh, a joke. A couple of days later I realised he was completely serious. A few days later, I started to really dawn on me that it was a a great ingenious idea. Passion fruit is actually quite high yielding, so we're hoping we can grow enough to suit our needs just on these 10 rows. It's taken a lot of man hours to get it from a a kind of like a rubble-filled patch to what it is at the moment, but we're still still going. So hit by a lot of bad weather um, over the, the hot summer, then the floods, and then the wind. Um, and it's just starting to come together now, so we're really excited for the, this, the growth through this season and what's to come next year. G'day, my name is Ryan Aitchison, Director of Smith Street Distillery, publican of the Illawarra Hotel. It's more about saying, right, how do we, how do we get creative in making it commercially viable to spend a lot of time and a bit of money in doing things well and truly above and beyond what anyone in the industry is doing. To me it's becoming quite cliche for a venue to put a few solar panels on and say we're at the forefront of sustainability and you know we think that so much more can be done. We're not just out to to say it, we're out to to prove it. The thought behind creating a, a distillery was obviously financially it can sustain a really cool urban farm but also they both complement each other and it's as a three-way kind of setup as well complementing the pub you know in being able to produce a lot of the stuff that we serve here as well. As well as growing garnishes for cocktails and ingredients for distilling this urban farm also processes a huge amount of organic food waste from local cafes and pubs through an in-ground composting system. Well, you can thank my mum for the strategy we use here because what she still does is she, instead of waiting for compost to, to cure and that, and you know, it takes months and months, what she does is put, puts bins in, in her gardens and lets it leach and turns them into quite large worm farms. And that means that we can process about 500 litres of, of compost a week and we keep topping these bins up, giving them a stir, and then when we fill them all up, we just get more, more and more bins. We've got plenty of garden space. So the, the strategy we've got here means that we can take on a heck of a lot, but also we see, we see the upsides straight away. You know, you can see all the plants around the bins, you know, they're just, they've gone crazy. We can't keep up um, to the extent that we can't even get to the bins because they've completely gone around them. So 
Um, yeah, it's it's been a really interesting journey, um, having no formal training and just relying on advice. We've got so much more to learn, but even stuff we've learnt so far showing um, quite seasoned people how we're doing it, even they're scratching their head and going, hey, that's a really good way of doing it. We're creating a case study here to say, this is what we're doing, this is the amount of time and money it takes, but have a look at the upside that we've received to our business, you know, because people really do care. When we're behind the bar or anywhere and we talk to our customers, let them know exactly where their products are coming from and how it's got onto their plate and from the sustainability standpoint, they're on the edge of their seat. You know, We've instantly engaged with them because it's becoming more of a thing where you can't just be sustainable when it's convenient. We all need to get creative and say, right, I don't care what our business is, what can we do outside of the box to, to minimise and you know, even go the other way? How do we have a positive impact on the environment through running our business? So that's what we're out there to create some really good anecdotal evidence that it works and that, yep, you will see an upside to your business because look at us. Publican Ryan Atchison, he was speaking to reporter Justin Huntsdale about his urban farm in the central business district of Wollongong in the New South Wales Illawarra region. For more on that story, head online to the RN homepage where you can see photos of the farm and what's growing there. That's at abc.net.au slash RN. You're listening to A Big Country on RN. I'm Clint Jasper and still to come, whales are known for the sound of their song and now scientists on Queensland's Sunshine Coast are studying their ability to hear. And swapping the surfboard for the tractor cab. We'll meet some of the young workers helping out with this year's grain harvest. Hello, my name's Avalon Newman and I am from Cos Harbour, the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And now I'm in Moree, so and I'm a farmhand working on a farm. <laughs> Each year, as the grain harvest kicks off along the New South Wales-Queensland border, an unlikely crew of workers step away from their lives to help. And this year, Avalon Newman is one of them. She's made the trek from the coast out west to work on a farm and help with the harvest of crops like wheat, barley and chickpeas. So I was just randomly scrolling through Instagram one day. I've been watching some videos on social media. I was like, oh, seeing some video, like harvest videos on TikTok. I was like, that looks awesome. That looks amazing. I want to be there. How do I do that? And it, quite, it is quite hard finding someone to help you get out there. And I was just scrolling through Instagram one day, I came up across Seasonal Work Oz, and it was just this young girl had an account and she was just trying to get young people out west. And um, yeah, I thought it was too good to be true. And she said there was no resume needed, no work needed, no experience, nothing. It was just, it sounded too good to be true, just hand, a job handed to you straight away. Yeah, it just sounded so convincing to get out here. So. I literally packed my bag, two days later, came out to Maury, never been here before, and um, yeah, stayed ever since. Hello, I'm Alice Marshall, and I'm here in Moree in northern New South Wales, where Avalon has found work this harvest season. It's also where that young girl, behind the Instagram page that attracted Avalon to the farm work, is based. Heidi Morris is a local wedding photographer who downs her camera each year to drive a 20-tonne header during harvest. I've been doing seasonal work for about a year now, just over a year, and the interest has been overwhelming. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that just aren't sure how to get their foot in the door in the ag industry, and um, sort of creating a platform that makes it easier for those to get in touch and sort of get out here has um, made all the difference. In the 12 months since she's been operating Seasonal Work Oz, she cannot believe how many people 
both farmers and potential future farm workers have reached out to her. The demand for workers out here is uh, incredible. Like You're not only looking for people to jump on these machines, you're looking for people on the ground, you're looking for people in town. It's just become such a big thing and I think it's I think the, the message, you know, if there's anyone out there that is willing to sort of come out and have a crack, come out. There's just so many opportunities. If you don't have any experience, it's not a problem. And um, as long as you've got a good attitude, there's a job here for you all the time. And the unlikely workforce that have come to sit on tractors and headers has had local farming communities delighting in their differences. Here's Coffs Harbour-born Avalon Newman again. I surfed my whole life, so all my friends were very shocked when... I came all the way out to the country to be, like literally be in the middle of nowhere on a tractor, which is so random. And I honestly wouldn't have thought, I don't think my parents thought I would be doing that either, but it has been the best thing I've ever done. It, you are pretty out west and a lot of cowboys out and about, so it's very different. Like even the style of clothing took me a while to get into it. I was like wearing little tanks and like, yeah, bikinis and had my hair out and all that back home and now you just wear like boy clothes and yeah it's crazy cowgirl boots everything you like you name it. Chris Turner has spent the last 15 years as a qualified carpenter and now each year since 2015 he's left the job site to drive the 1500 kilometres north with his headers to Bungunya in southern Queensland. He caught the bug after only one season and now he operates his own contract harvesting business. Yeah, I was probably, I was a bit green, I'll admit that, um, yeah, there was, especially on the mechanical side of it sort of thing, like it, yeah, like, like operating them was good, but, you know, if something broke it, you know, it took a bit to work out how to fix it and that, but, um, yeah, you're always learning in this industry. The best way to learn is when something's broken and you pull it apart and put it back together and hope it works again. Something that I'd always wanted to do, I'd, I'd never worked the hours, like, you know, you you know, you might have been, you know, some days you're doing 10 to 12, some days you're doing 16, 18 hours. And it took a little bit to adjust to that. But, um, yeah, I sort of, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was something different. And, yeah, I've seen, you know, country that I've never seen before and different sort of farming methods. It sort of really opened my eyes up to, you know, not being around our little, you know, little area back home. It's people like Chris who come back year after year, that are worth their weight in gold to farmers. You get all sorts of people in this, um, in this game. Um, yeah, like people who've got no experience whatsoever to people that, you know, every year, you know, for 10 years have been coming out driving a chaser bin or, you know, it's a probably, it's a really good industry for networking and meeting people and it opens doors and, um, especially with the shortage on labour at the moment, like everyone out here is, Probably nearly every farm's looking for a worker. Um, you know, we've had it where we've had had workers come and work for us, and then they've actually they haven't stayed on the farm, but they've come back to the farm that we've worked on, and you know, done seeding for them and stuff like that, or drove a sprayer, or they've actually picked up full-time work on the farm that they, you know, drove a chaser in or a header on. What you're hearing sounds like it's from another world, but it's actually just beneath the waves off Queensland's Sunshine Coast. It's the sound of singing whales, snapping shrimp, which sound a whole lot like a sizzling barbecue, 
And amongst it all are some strange other noises going up and down in pitch. It's these noises that scientists from the University of Queensland are using to test the hearing of humpback whales as they migrate along the coastline north of Coulomb. Associate Professor Dr Rebecca Dunlop heads the project. G'day, I'm Owen Jarks and I'm chatting with Dr Dunlop. She hopes the findings will help scientists understand just what whales can hear, something they don't know a lot about at the moment. When it comes to baleen whales, we don't know a lot um, because they are big and very difficult to work with. We've never gone out and actually tested their hearing because they're, they're huge, it's, it's difficult to do. The way that we've set it up is that we have a team of volunteers on the hill and they track a group of whales as it moves down the coast. So I can see what they're seeing essentially. I can follow the track of the whale. The first thing we try and do is tag that whale which is very difficult and so to tag a whale you need to get extremely close and you put a suction cup acoustic tag on using a long pole and the good thing about humpbacks is they're migrating so they tend to pick a direction and pick a speed so you can quite accurately predict where they're going to end up in six kilometers down the coast i direct the source vessel to go there the source vessel sits there and then as they swim to about four and a half kilometers from that source vessel the, the signal gets turned on and then we literally just wait and see what they do and usually it takes a little bit you know they they might stop they might have a little bit of a listen they might deviate their course a little bit and once they've done that then we assume that they've heard the signal and then we make lots and lots of acoustic measurements and then we measure the noise we measure the level at which they heard that signal and we do it over and over and over again with lots of different frequencies and at the end of the day we should have some idea of their frequency range and sensitivity. Why is this so important to know? It's no new news that um, we're putting a lot of noise into the ocean. Naval sonar, we've got oil and gas industry with seismic surveys, we've got wind farm developments with pile driving, we've got shipping and of course we need to develop mitigation around those activities. So we need to develop policies to say, look, you know, they can hear this to this far away and to mitigate for any negative effects, we need to reduce the noise by this much or that much. And the fundamental piece of data to developing those policies is what a whale can hear. And that's the very piece that we're actually missing. And there's increasing evidence that noise from anthropogenic sources does have negative effects on their feeding behavior for example whales can stop feeding and leave that area on breeding behavior it can mask their communication signals so the evidence is overwhelming that noise has negative effects but what we need to do is control what we are doing and mitigate for those negative effects but the only way we can do that is if we understand what they're hearing um, and how far away for example they can hear these noise sources Carrying out this research is quite a big logistical exercise and Dr Dunlop says coordinating it is a pretty cool job. Look, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, we get to, you know, look quite cool when we're driving up plonking tags on whales and then, you know, we've got volunteers up on the hill, we've got one boat doing a focal follow, we've got another boat six kilometres ahead playing a source. Um, if you'd asked me 20 years ago if that would be my... My, my study, I would laugh and say, nah, that, uh, no way, but now I'm doing it. Yeah, I think I'm pretty cool. Professor Michael Node is on the boat up ahead playing noises to the whales so researchers can see how they react. The sort of sound we play is just a little tone that just goes up a little bit. It's all, almost like a little sort of whistle that goes up. And it's the sort of sound that they wouldn't necessarily hear normally underwater. 
And so what we think is happening from the whale's point of view is that they hear this and they're not quite sure what it is. It doesn't sound particularly threatening or anything, it's just that it's an unusual sound for them. And that's why they hesitate and just have a little, you know, a little listen to try and work out what the sound is, where it is. A lot of the time after they do that hesitation, they then just swim straight past the boat where we're playing the, the sound from. So it, it, it certainly doesn't worry the whales terribly much. Whales travel a huge distance when migrating. Why do these tests off the Sunshine Coast? Well, our study area is sort of from Noosa down to around about Perigian Beach. And so by the time, um, you know, Beck is trying to, um, you know, get tags on the whales and then start to follow the whales down the coast, usually where we do the actual sound experiment from is off Perigian Beach itself. We've been working at Perigian for a long time. We've, we've, been, we've actually been working there for... Well, it's more than 20 years now. So one of the big advantages for us working there is that we've got a very good handle on the behaviour of the whales as they move down the coast because we've, we've done so much work there. So, so Perigian is a great place for us to work um, because, of, because we know so much about the underlying whale behaviour as they move down the coast. Um, so it's a, it, it really is a perfect sort of experimental spot for this sort of work. University of Queensland professor Michael Node speaking to Owen Jacks about a research project studying migrating whales on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. You can read more about that story and all of the stories on today's program. You'll find details at the Big Country program page on the RN website, abc.net.au slash rn. That's the show for today. I'll be back with you next week with more great stories from regional Australia. I'll talk to you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.